Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. This week's guest is here to talk about public transportation and some of the changes that are happening within the transit systems across the US. Paul Comfort, who's the host of a podcast called Transit Unplugged. Transit Unplugged is, well, it's kind of similar to investing with a buy side in the sense that Paul brings on CEOs from the public transit space to talk about trends and developments that are going on within their transit systems. Paul was formerly a CEO of MTA Maryland, which is the Maryland Transit Authority. He's held several positions within public office, and he's also an author, and he currently works for a company called Trapeze Group that provides solutions to, well, among other things, transit authorities. It's a great honor to have Paul on the podcast, and if you're interested in public transportation and just some of the changes that are going on within the industry, this is a great podcast for you to listen to. And so without further ado, let's get to the interview with Paul Comfort. Paul Comfort, thank you so very much for joining the IWTV podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much. So I would love to hear about your, your background. Um, you, you, you're a former CEO. You, you have your own podcast. You, you, you do a lot of different things. Well, thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And it's an, it's an honor and a joy to share with you some of my life and what I'm working on. And hopefully uh, it'll be interesting and informative and um, inspirational to your listeners. I basically decided early on that I wanted to do what I loved and follow kind of my passion. Uh, and I know that sounds like a millennial type thing to do, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm Generation X. But uh, when I went to college, I enjoyed history. So I just studied history. I said, you know what? I'm smart. I'll get a job. I want to work in government or somehow helping people. And But I really want to study more about history. So I studied Byzantine history, Byzantium, uh, Chinese history. Uh, the media became one of my passions in life. The other one was music early on. I play piano and sing. Uh, we had a band called Sons of Thunder in college. We played all over Maryland, made a record, all played original tunes. We didn't do cover tunes very often. Wrote 50 songs, had a lot of fun, had like a local you know, group following 50 people or so that would follow us around to our different gigs and had a blast doing that. And then we all started getting married and decided we were going to get on with real life. But music has remained a passion of mine. Uh, and then the last is politics or government. I've always been interested in government and politics, and I talk about this a lot in my book, Full Throttle, kind of how um, politics and government has informed what I've done for a career. Those two, I ran for office when I was young and did lots of, was involved in a lot of political campaigns from a very young age, been very active in politics. So those three things have kind of been my guiding passions in life, and I've tried to, the reason I give you that is I've tried to work those passions into my career. You know, I found out that jobs are what you make of them. And if you're pretty good, your bosses will usually give you a little flexibility to work in what you're good at. And there's a book, you know, a whole big uh, series of books on strength finder, finding your strength and sticking with that. And I'm a strong believer in that. You know, even the Bible says uh, your gifts will bring you before great men. And, uh, and so I believe that the, the gifts and the interests that we have that are kind of hardwired into our psyche are where we should focus our efforts. Uh, if you're good at it and you have an interest in it, that's the X spot. I think that's the spot of your destiny. And so anyway, that's what I did. Uh, after I gr graduated from college with my bachelor's degree, I went on to uh, get a job right locally with my local government in the Department of Aging. It kind of came to me like most things in life do. Uh, when I ran for office for county commissioner, I was 21, one of the other guys running. 
was also the director of the Department of Aging. And he, when I, I didn't win for county commissioner, he didn't win for the office he was running for. His name was Irving Pinder. And he said, Paul, you know, I really, I think you're a great young man. You've got a lot of passion and energy. I could use people like you to work in my government department called the, the Queen Anne's County Department of Aging. And I have a new position coming open, uh, a transportation coordinator. We've got vans that take people to the doctor and, and uh, help disabled people get around, people with disabilities. And I'd like you to join our team in that, in that brand new slot. And so I did. And 31 years later, <laughs> here I am after a long career, did that for seven years, uh, ran for state's attorney in my home county. And again, I didn't win, but I uh, made a lot of good friends. And as a result of that, made the right connections. And I was selected to be the CEO of our county government, called a county administrator. So that was probably my most fun job I've ever done because it's so diverse. I love lots of diversity. And so running a county government from, you know, the fire engines to the ambulances, to planning and zoning, to the school system, to the sheriff's department, to all that, running a jail, it was a great time. Uh, and became president of our state county administrators association through which I made the right contacts and applied for a job in a much bigger county, Charles County, Maryland, uh, a suburb of Washington, D.C. Took that job as their county administrator, ran their $300 million uh, operating budget, a couple hundred million dollars um, in a capital budget. And then I ran for county commissioner in my home county. This time I won uh, and I uh, was top vote getter in the county. But a good friend of mine won for governor as well. His name is Larry Hogan. Uh, and he asked me to take over as CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration, the MTA, which is the Baltimore City Transit System, plus oversight and funding for all the transit in Maryland. Uh, and so I did that $800 million operating budget, 5,000 employees and contractors, kind of the peak of my career, the 11th largest transit system in America. And uh, while I was there, built the first uh, FM radio station in America run by a transit system. Again, working what I love into the system. We played smooth jazz all day long and transit and traffic updates four times an hour. And we had a cable television program that was broadcast into a million homes in the Maryland area. And we rebooted and rebranded our entire transit system, Baltimore Link. We put together the largest public-private partnership project in America. I think it still is for transit. It's $5 billion project called the Purple Line, the light rail line outside of D.C., 16.2-mile light rail line between Bethesda, and it goes around through Silver Spring and some of the cities outside and connects in with the Washington Metro system. So uh, we had a lot of fun while I was there, and then uh, I left them 30 years in the career uh, and became vice president and national vice president of business development for Trapeze, which is the world's largest transportation technology company, transit technology. We do software, everything it takes to run a transit system. I think we have 60 software and hardware products, plus fare boxes, ticket vending machines, uh, all the equipment that goes inside of a bus to run, to run it for public transit. So I'm kind of like their goodwill ambassador which is why I'm on with you today, <laughs> because my job with them is to kind of spread the good news of the gospel of transit, you know, how that public transit really helps with economic development, it helps people get the jobs, it helps jobs get workers to them, uh, and so many other things, you know, it helps the environment and is, uh, is a good investment, a good public investment, we believe. And so that's my job. I uh, started a podcast called Transit Unplugged, where I interview transit CEOs, which has won lots of awards and got lots of acclaim over the last year, wrote a book, Full Throttle, which includes contributions from nine other transit CEOs talking about how to live life to the max with no regrets. And that's what I'm trying to do, Nate. I'm trying to live my life with no regrets, kind of live it full throttle, be fully out there and leave it all on the field so that when I die, my kids can know their dad left it all out on the field of play and that, you know, I climbed the ladder of success and it was not leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> and so that's my game plan, brother. 
Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate appreciate you sharing all that. You, you did mention that that transit is a good public investment, and so one of the things that I've always found to be a little bit curious is just there's there's not that many, or at least not a, not that I'm aware of, not that many publicly traded companies that do public transit. Why is that? That's a really good question, and uh, I can explain that to you. So um, America used to have mostly private companies that ran their transit systems up until about the 1970s. I can use Baltimore as an example because I'm real familiar with that. I actually had one of the former drivers from the Baltimore Transit Company come to work for me back when I was in my 20s. The deal was that uh, several companies in most big cities would run you know, trolleys uh, on tracks or public buses, but they were not able to break even. And almost all of them uh, went out of business. And so the government decided that as a result of them going out of business, that the, it, we still needed public transit. It's just it could not be operated. The people who were riding public transit could not afford to pay enough in fares to subsidize the entire system and all the capital costs that would require to get new vehicles and fuel and all that. It costs more to run it than they could really collect from people in fares than people were willing to pay in most cases, not all cases. Some rail services in America continued on for quite a while and even now commuter rail services in America, like for instance, the Mark train service in Maryland that I used to run, still collects about 50%, uh, what they call fare box recovery ratio, which is pretty high. Most transit systems now, bus systems in cities, are only collecting around 15 to 25% of their actual costs uh, through the fare box. So basically the bottom line was the market would not support public transit and it went out of business. And so the government decided to step in and make it a public utility, run it like a public utility uh, and subsidize it heavily. And that's where we're at today. And so they, when you've done the investment analysis, folks that are smarter than me have determined that this is a good rate of return for public uh, governments to operate this service, just like we subsidize highways, just like we subsidize parks uh, and many other services, schools, et cetera. Uh, the public has decided that public transit is one that now has to compete for the public dollar, but still is publicly subsidized. Now, there are companies, Nate, that do uh, contract with government agencies to run them. And there's some of the companies that I used to work for, actually. There's a company, the company I called Laidlaw, they were bought up by a British company called First Transit. They're a British company, uh, and they are, I believe, publicly traded. Another one, Transdev, as one of the other big companies that is publicly traded. There's a third American company called MV Transportation. It's based out of Dallas, but they're privately held. They're not on the public market. But there are other companies like National Express uh, out of Britain. They work here in the U.S. There's a company called Keolis. There's another company called RATP Dev. They're the big ones. Uh, and I believe most of them, if not all of them, are publicly traded. And then there are a lot of supplier companies uh, like my own and others that supply services, buses, uh, all kinds of equipment. And many of them, either them or their parent companies, are publicly traded. So the, su the supplier and vendor companies oftentimes have connections in, but also are publicly traded. I'm curious, do you, do, do you see, so, you know, if I just think about kind of the history of what you were describing within transit across the United States, you, you know, maybe it was lower income people who were taking the bus uh, because they couldn't maybe afford a car and insurance. But over time, things have changed and you have this sort of younger community, this young, younger, well, like you said, the, the, the new generations, I don't know, the millennials and the generation Z <laughs> yeah, or Gen whatever. Gen Z and, and Gen Y, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're actually moving, flocking to cities where- That's right. They can, you know, live in a city where they don't have to own a vehicle and they can take public transit. Do you see kind of a resurgence in the appetite, at least from the public's perspective, for public transportation? 
Yes, uh, definitely. That, that's actually what's driving the industry right now. As I talk to CEOs around the country, and I've interviewed 40 of them over the last year uh, from Transit Systems for my show, uh, they all are sensing... Um, so let's go to Seattle, for instance. Uh, the CEO of King County Metro, uh, Rob Gannon, has told me that you know what's driving transit increasing in ridership. A lot of cities have seen a steady decline over the last decade in ridership, but cities like Houston and Seattle, and now other cities like Austin, uh, where there's a lot of young people flocking, are and uh, are seeing increases in ridership. I think Columbus is as well. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.